When we were on holidays last year to a small country town in South Australia, we went along to the only church in the town that meets every week. And when we walked in, there were eight people in there. 
And three of those people, it turned out, were visiting that day as well. And so when Kathy and I turned up with all of us, six of us, that meant there were nine visitors that day and there were five regulars. Now I'm guessing when people in that town, uh, when they think about church, they'd see it as pretty small, pretty unimpressive. Some might call it quaint. Others, if they're not being so kind, might call it pathetic. But now jump to the other extreme with me. Something like um, a megachurch, something like Hillsong, for example. Apparently there are 35,000 people who attend a, a Hillsong service each, every week in Australia. That's huge. That's, that's not weak or, or pathetic at all. It's daunting and some people find it even a bit threatening. But I think for most Australians, it's just a bit of a mystery. I think both extremes are a bit of a mystery to many Australians. You know, why are these five still turning up to church week by week, hanging in there? That's a mystery. And why are those 35,000 turning up week by week? That's a mystery too. In so many ways, church is something of a mystery to many Australians today. I reckon in one sense, they, they feel like they understand it and because they think they understand it, Australians can't understand why on earth anyone is still interested in church. That part of church to them is a bit of a mystery. Today in the part of the Bible that we're looking at, we see that God agrees that church is a mystery, but not necessarily in the way that we might think. God sees the church as a mystery that can be easily understood, a mystery that He's actually revealing to the whole world, and a mystery that when it's understood properly, it explains why the church exists, it explains why people persist with church, and it explains how in God's eyes a church of just five people or of 50,000 people can both show His greatness. Today we're going to attempt to see the church through God's eyes. Remember last week, we saw that God is making a new humanity out of two groups of people, out of Jewish people and non-Jewish people. A, A family we saw that's brought together by Jesus' death. So far, Paul, in that part, hasn't used the word church, but that's exactly what he's been talking about. Well, today now, in Ephesians 3 verse 1, Paul says this, For this reason, because God's making a new humanity out of Jews and non-Jews, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. He doesn't finish the sentence. Instead, what happens is he goes off on a tangent and he doesn't come back to his initial thought, actually, until verse 14, where he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. So he was about to tell them what he prays for them, but first he says in verse 2, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He goes off on a tangent to explain to them his role, who he is, and what it means that, that he's a prisoner of Christ. Now, this is a tangent, but it's not like the kind of tangents that we seem to have in, in my young adult's um, Bible study group that meets in my house on a Wednesday night. Sometimes we end up talking about things like alien invasions. I don't even know how we get there and all sorts of crazy tangents. And I realized the other day that I'm actually responsible for quite a few of them. <laughs> this is not a tangent like that, though, because it's related to what Paul's just been saying. It, it's very relevant because his God given role 
is all about telling the world that the Gentiles are now fully included in God's people. And this brings us to our first point. God reveals to Paul the mystery that through the gospel message, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, are brought together in Christ. Now, as Paul said in verse 3, he's already briefly written about this in the letter. And that's what we were seeing last week. But what's a bit different this week is that Paul starts calling it a mystery. In fact, three times in four verses, Paul uses the word mystery. So you can see there, verse 3, mystery. Verse 4, he says the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery. It's a a mystery that God's revealed to him in verse 3. It's a mystery he's got insight into in verse 4. It's a mystery that had only then been revealed in verse 5 and revealed not just to Paul, but to the other prophets and apostles too. We normally think of a mystery as something to be solved by our own wisdom. But this is not a mystery like that. This is a mystery that's got to be revealed. So the mystery that Paul's talking about here is a mystery not like this one. It's not like a riddle. See, a man is looking at a photograph of someone. His friend says, who is it? The man replies, brothers and sisters, I have none, but that man's father is my father's son, who is in the photograph. It's not a mystery like that. Does anyone know the answer, by the way? No, not himself. Tangent. (laughs) This is a mystery you can solve yourself, maybe after about two or three coffees, and in my case, Googling the answer. The answer is the man's son. I had to look at a diagram on on the internet to get it. But the mystery that... Paul says God's shown him is not that kind of mystery. It's a mystery that can only be solved by someone revealing the answer to you. So in other words, it's it's a mystery that's actually more like a secret. It's this kind of mystery. What's my dad's middle name? Now, no matter how many coffees you've had, No matter how wise you are, it's not going to help you solve this mystery. And Google's not going to help either because Google's never heard of my dad, just like my dad's never heard of Google. (laughs) No matter how wise you are, you'll never get the answer to that. It's a mystery that's just got to be revealed to you. And the thing about this mystery with my dad's middle name is that it's got a twist. He's actually got two middle names, one that's a bit funny and one that's normal. Austin Edward. See, now that you know the mystery, it's not really very mysterious anymore, is it? Did I just insult someone? (laughs) I won't reveal which one I think the weird one is now. It'll be a bit safer. But see, now that you know that mystery, it's not mysterious. The mystery disappears. And it's the same with the mystery that God reveals to Paul. It's got to be revealed. It's got a twist. And it stops being a mystery once you know it. In verse 6, Paul tells us exactly what this mystery is. Have a look at it with me. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. This is what we saw last week, isn't it? Gentiles, non-Jews who were far from God, like Craig said at the beginning, 
are now, we read here, co-heirs, heirs together with Israel. And they're, they're one body. We are one body with Jews. They equally share God's promises. Jesus' death has created this new humanity, fully at peace with God and fully at peace with each other. Now we know from reading the Bible that God talked about the Gentiles coming in all the time in the Old Testament. Does that sound familiar to you? You know, right from the beginning to Abraham. What did God promise? That through Abraham all the nations would be blessed. Or you you think of Isaiah and other places, the great hope was for the the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to stream into Jerusalem, into the temple, and to learn about this God and and to take what they learnt back out to the rest of the world. And so you might be thinking, this doesn't sound like much of a mystery. It sounds like what they should have been expecting. But the twist, the thing that was so unexpected was that the Gentiles are not brought into Israel. Instead, with Jesus' death, the theocracy of Israel ends. The shock was that God was no longer going to work through the political nation of Israel, founded upon his temple in Jerusalem, constituted by the law. That was not how God was choosing to work anymore. God does not renew the nation of Israel. Instead, God's plan now is for a completely new humanity made up of Jews and Gentiles as equal members and founded on Christ alone. It's a radical twist that they didn't see coming, even though when you look back, it makes perfect sense of what you find. And now that God has revealed this mystery, He doesn't want it to stay hidden any longer. And this brings us to our second point. God empowers Paul to take the gospel message to Gentiles and this mystery to everyone. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Occasionally, people try to paint Paul as a kind of dominating man who, who benefits from his role almost like he exploits people. Almost always they're doing it because they don't like what he says about God and and so they're trying to discredit him. But they fail in that. They fail because if you read Paul fairly, it's very clear that he doesn't promote himself. And it's also very clear that his role doesn't bring him great earthly benefits. It brings him great pain and suffering. So first, look at how Paul sees himself in verse 8. He writes that he has this, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. The main reason that Paul talks like this is because before he became a Christian, he tried to destroy Christianity. He imprisoned Christians and and he, he approved of Christians being murdered until, as you might remember, Jesus confronted him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul lived acutely aware that in and of himself, he really was less than least of all God's people because of this. But in God's eyes, that's what made him the perfect person for his role. Because even God's very choice of Paul shows that it's all about God's grace, that it's all about his power 
not our own. Paul had nothing to gain from becoming a Christian. He was already powerful, he was already respected, and he had everything to lose. And in fact, from an earthly perspective, he lost an awful lot. In verse 1 he says, he's a prisoner of Christ. He was literally a prisoner of Nero in Rome, as he writes this letter. And in verse 1 he says that he's a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles. And if you remember the story, you'll remember that that's exactly the case. Paul was grabbed by a mob of Jews in Jerusalem because some people saw him with a guy called Trophimus in Jerusalem who was an Ephesian Gentile. And they thought that Paul had taken him, a Gentile, with him into the temple where no Gentiles were allowed to go. And they were so angry, they were trying to kill Paul and they would have except that some Roman soldiers came and arrested him instead. Paul then tried to explain to the mob the mystery, this mystery that God had revealed to him. And he pretty much said to them what he's saying here in verse 8. God had given him the role to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. But as soon as Paul said that God had sent him to the Gentiles, that was his role, they went berserk and the Roman soldiers had to retreat with Paul into the barracks. And as a result, eventually Paul ends up in Rome, a prisoner on trial because of his God-given role to announce to the world that Gentiles are in God's people. Paul tells them all this not because he wants to make them feel guilty, it's the opposite. Look at verse 13. He writes them, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. Which are your glory? He, do, he doesn't want them to feel bad about his situation. He wants them instead to realize that his sufferings are their glory, which might sound strange to us. And this brings us to our third point. See, Paul considers it worth suffering for God and for Gentiles, because the church is the result of this mystery going out into the world and the church results in God's wisdom being seen. Look at verse 10, where we see why God's doing what He's doing in the world. (coughs) God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See that? The church shows the wisdom of God. Can you believe that? Actually here, the church shows the manifold wisdom of God, the many-sided, the the diverse, the colourful wisdom of God. Wisdom that's on display not so much to people in this world, but on a cosmic scale. It's like this world is a stage on which God shows His wisdom and He does that in the church. Does that surprise you? I mean, maybe it worries you even (laughs) that Australians might look at the church and see it as a a mystery shrouded in, in weakness or suspicion And yet, God can look at the church and see it as displaying all the the sides and the colours of His wisdom. Even us, 
who, who appreciate church might be thinking, how can the church possibly do that? Well, we've already seen the answer and we see it again in verse 11. It's because what's on display in the church is according to God's eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church displays God's accomplishment. It displays what Jesus has accomplished, not our own. And we see what Jesus accomplished in verse 12. In Jesus and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. See, it's not the cathedrals that point to God's grandeur in the end. It's not the liturgy. It's not the history and and the rich tradition of the church that show the power of God, that we've existed for millennia. It's not even the amazing accomplishments of God's people in transforming culture and overcoming injustice. It's not primarily those things that show His heart. These things might be good, but what shows God's wisdom is that He is a family of weak people who have full confident, free access to God, who don't deserve to be loved by Him, and yet we are because of Jesus. A family who don't naturally belong together, and yet here we are, brought together by the love of Jesus and brought together to love like Jesus. The mere existence of a flawed people belonging to God and belonging to each other It's a testimony to God's love, to His kindness, to His grace. It's a display of His wisdom that can't be silenced. It's at this point that Paul returns to what he was originally going to say. And this brings us to our last point. God's work and Paul's concern for this mystery to be revealed to the world drives him to pray to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Look at what Paul prays in in verse 16. I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Reading this, we might ask, doesn't Christ dwell in our hearts by the Holy Spirit already? You know, why does Paul pray this for believers? The word used for dwell here is the word that you would talk about dwelling in your own home as opposed to somewhere that you might dwell for just a little while. Paul here is praying that Christ would dwell in our lives in ever-increasing degrees, is the idea. In other words, the family of God doesn't just grow in number, but we grow individually too as Christ rules in our lives. It's like we tend to say, you know, Jesus, make yourself at home in my home. It's like we say, Jesus, you're welcome to go anywhere you like in my life, just don't go into these three rooms. But of course, that's not the way that Jesus sees things. Our life is not our own. Those rooms are not ours, they're His. But Paul says we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us so that 
we can hand all of our life over to Jesus in ever-increasing degrees. The kingdom grows as people come, but it also grows in the life of each one of us here as well. Now, this is not God being cruel to us. This is actually God loving us. We see this in what Paul goes on to pray. Look at verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer here is it's like he's going up steps, getting higher and, and higher in what he's asking for us. So the first step and the second step we've seen, the first step, we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. The second step, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. Third step, so we're fully established in love. Fourth step, so we can grasp Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. And the final step, so that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's what God wants for us and that's what he's got planned for us. We hand our lives over to someone whose love goes beyond our knowledge and somehow as we hand our life over, we're filled with all the fullness of God. Us, weak people who don't deserve God's grace, we get to experience the fullness of God. It sounds impossible, but it's not for God. This is his wisdom. It's his glory. As Paul says in verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I was at uh, the Adelaide Oval on, on Friday night, as you heard before. Every game there is an amazing event at the Adelaide Oval. It's, it's a spectacular place. There were 46,000 people there, a bit over, I think. About two of them were St Kilda supporters, or at least they were Port fans. Everything on the night is spectacular, you know, from the venue to the game to the team's entrance, complete with fireworks that you can see there, to the massive crowd... Everything shows how great it is to be there. It's clear to everyone, even to those two St Kilda fans. Church is not like that. It's not spectacular, spectacular to look at. It's not clear to everyone that it's great. Not in the eyes of ordinary Australians. For many, it's still a mystery why anyone would bother. But in God's eyes, the church is showing something spectacular. Five people in a town gathering each week can show that. 50,000 people gathering can show that. But it won't be because they put on a good show on a Sunday. It won't be because they have impressive music or amazing sermons or even inspiring scones with jam. The church is only spectacular because it shows the spectacular character of our God, the beautiful character of our God. That God takes people like us, his enemies, 
and he makes us his family, a family he unites by Jesus' love. We're going to see more about what this means next week, but I want to finish by looking at a couple of things that we need to take away from this today. And the first thing I want to say is, are we here looking at the church through gospel eyes? God sees this as a spectacular thing, that this is the spectacular thing that God is doing in the world. Not just Trinity Northeast, not just the Trinity Network, of course, every true community built on Jesus alone shows God's spectacular character, his beautiful character. And if we're seeing the world with gospel eyes, then we'll value every true church that's out there. But especially we'll value the brothers and sisters that God has placed around us in our church. You know, having gospel eyes, seeing things God's way, means that we'll love what God is doing in the world in practice, not just in theory. We shouldn't be people who are ashamed of the church. People might misunderstand it, they might despise it or or mock this even, but we need to be people who see church from God's perspective and, and value it like He does. And when we see church like that, we'll find ourselves, like Paul, wanting to see other people come to understand this mystery too. We'll long to see people joined into the new humanity that Jesus is creating. See, the true church isn't an embarrassing part of the picture to be glossed over. The true church shows God's wisdom and glory. The next thing I want to say from what we've seen today is that seeing the church through gospel eyes means avoiding the temptation of trying to create the church, create this in the image of the world, with the wisdom of the world. And if we're seeing T and E, with gospel eyes, then we'll see that God's doing something spectacular. Not because we're spectacular in ourselves. It's the opposite, isn't it? Despite our many flaws and weaknesses, God has brought us together to be loved by Jesus and to love like Jesus. It's, it's not because we're so lovable here that we bring glory to God. Have you ever thought about that? It's because we're not so lovable but we're loved nonetheless by God and by each other. That's what brings glory to God. We don't start bringing glory to God when we all become lovable, but when we love nonetheless. We're not brought together based on a a common interest. We're not even brought together by our common desire to see T&E thrive. Or our common desire to church plant. That's not what brings us together. We're only brought together based on our common experience of having Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We show God's wisdom when we come together like that. People bonded together by Jesus, loving each other because He's loved us. The next thing to say is that seeing the church through gospel eyes means we model ourselves off Jesus. And part of following Jesus' lead means intentionally breaking down the barriers that would normally keep us apart. We want to be people, a people of different cultures. And so we need to make room for one another. Of different education levels, of different ages. 
It's, it's a powerful testimony to what Jesus' death achieves. Can I ask you to deliberately break down the kind of barriers that our, our culture normally creates? And I, th- I think we need to be deliberate about it. You know, who, who would you not normally cross paths with who are here, just in your everyday life? You know, because they're different to you or something like that. Go out of your way to live out the fact that you are family by knowing those people as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here, but midweek as well. At a church that I used to be at, there was this guy who, um, in a talk this long, would have had a, had a couple of smokos by now, probably, probably three today, I reckon. And one of the ladies, someone you wouldn't expect, she would sometimes have a smoke with him. That's powerful. That's delighting in showing God's wisdom. I think it's inspiring. I could never quite bring myself to do it, mostly because when I have a a cigarette, I feel like falling over. But I think that's inspiring, crossing the barriers like that. You know, when the plumber invites the gastroenterologist, can't even say it, I don't know know if the plumber could, but around for lunch? It's hard, have a go. Don't just laugh and judge me, Barb. (laughs) Gastroenterologist. (laughs) Oh, okay, some people can do it. We all have different abilities. <laughs> but that's showing God's wisdom. You know, when the bikey, hairy and covered in tats, prays with the, the nice old lady, that's showing God's wisdom. When the retiree looks after the baby in, in creche, when it's done because of Jesus, that's God's wisdom on display. You probably notice that I go on a lot um, about things like bell, be early, leave late, and the importance of lunches, the value of meal rosters, welcoming people, community groups, our gardening group, and having people around for a meal. See, these are not nice things around the edges of, of who we are. These are living out our calling to be God's family, a community united by God's grace, brought together by Jesus, built on His love, and filled with all the fullness of God, His love overflowing. Finally, if we see the church through gospel eyes, then like Paul, we'll pray for each other. Because God's glory, it's displayed in the church and it's displayed in the hearts of each one of us who make up the church. But it's only as God enables us that we'll be able to yield more and more of our lives to Jesus' rule. It's pretty hard to pray for everyone here, but we really can start with our community groups. We need to be praying that God would do more than we can ask or imagine. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, what you are doing in this world when we see it your way is just spectacular. Nothing else overcomes the barriers between us as humans, like Jesus' death does. Lord, out of what looks so weak in so many people's eyes, you are making something that is amazing, a people who love you and are loved by each other, now in this fallen life and perfectly for all eternity when we meet with you face to face in heaven. Lord, help us already to start to live this. We need your help. 
We desperately need your Holy Spirit to be at work amongst us, your people, strengthening our hearts, enabling us to hand all of our lives over to Christ, enabling us to be fully established in love, ourselves grasping the love of Jesus, which we'll never fully reach the depths of. And Lord, somehow, amazingly filled with all your fullness. Lord, this vision that you have for us is beautiful. Help us never to despise it and help us to live worthy of this calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.